How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study uh, in this lesson, let's bow our heads together and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to focus on the truth of your word, knowing that this is absolute truth because it uh, originates with you. It is not something that originates with man. And because it is absolute truth, we can we know that we need to come to know it, internalize it, assimilate it into our thinking, our souls, so that on, on the basis of the truth of your word, we can evaluate what goes on inside of our own souls as well as that which goes on uh, around us in our families, at jobs and careers, in our role as citizens in this country and and as uh, as believers as we interact with the world around us, we know that there are so many ideas that uh, have been camouflaged and uh, a lot of makeup's been put on them, a lot of cosmetics have been put on them to make the uh, cosmic system seem nice and orderly and attractive, but we know that this is just a deception. And only as the, uh, these outer layers uh, are uh, peeled back do we expose the real evil that's there. So, Father, help us as we uh, seek to understand how we can contend for the faith within our own souls, our own thinking, as we apply uh, this uh, verse of 3 in Jude, the importance of contending for the faith, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in our study of Jude, we're focusing on the whole principle of contending for the faith, which is the theme of this epistle. And the importance is that we are to be involved in a high-priority struggle, a high-priority battle for truth. And that is what is indicated by this word uh, that is translated contending. And we're to contend for the faith, indicating a set body of doctrine that is uh, that has been given to us, revealed to us uh, via the via the writers of Scripture, but originating by God as God the Holy Spirit worked in and through them to write and record uh, the Scripture. Now, in this lesson, continuing with our study and how we can apply this principle of contending for the faith. In uh, Jude 3, we need to learn how to identify worldly thinking in our own souls, worldly thinking in our own souls. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says that we are to not be conformed to the world. Now, it's a different word that's used for world there. It's not the word cosmos. It's a different word. It is uh, a word that has more the idea of of a time frame because each age, each era has its own its own spirit, its own mentality, its own way of thinking. So that you look at uh, 5th century B.C. Greece and you had the rise of the Greek philosophers and, of course, they're trying to find truth apart from God on the basis of reason alone or experience alone, depending on whether you're following Plato or Aristotle. And then you bump forward a few hundred years 
and you end up uh, uh, realizing that in Greek culture they've sort of drifted away from uh, <clears throat> rationalism and empiricism, and now uh, those really did not give satisfactory answers to the deep questions of life. And so uh, what, ha- what pervades Greek culture at this point is mysticism, that somehow we can't live with the uh, dark despair of no answer. Uh, we have to live as if there are absolutes, even though on the basis of human reason alone or experience alone, on the basis of human philosophy, we can't find answers. We can't find real meaning uh, because there's a rejection of God that's gone on, Romans 1.18, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And in its place, there's an attempt to find truth in another form uh, on the basis of human reason, on the basis of human, uh, human authority. Now, when this takes place, ultimately, it always ends up with nothing. It always ends up wanting something. But man can't live in that sense of despair. This is the same kind of thing that's happened in modern times with the despair of nihilism, the despair of Nietzsche, the despair of of, uh, existentialism, that there's really no meaning out there. There's no real objective meaning. All we have is whatever meaning we can invent for ourselves. That's uh, existentialism, which, as we'll see in, in the study, really comes under the category of a worldview that now is fading quickly from the cultural scene and being replaced by what is known as uh, postmodernism. That uh, existentialism was sort of the last dying breath of modernism, and it gave birth to uh, postmodernism, which is existentialism that has just gone to seed. And um, as I look at this, a word I've just used uh, two or three times we need to talk about is the word culture. What is a culture? Uh, culture is a word that often people associate with what we might call high culture, uh, going to the opera, going to symphony, going to art museums. But this is uh, just one application of the word culture. Uh, a, the culture basically describes uh, what goes on within a society of people, a group of people. If you work at an office building somewhere, uh, work for a particular company, you work for an oil and gas company, you work at a bank, you uh, teach school, you work at a school, there is a culture in that environment. Uh, when you go home to your family, there is a, a family culture. One family uh, may have uh, one culture, another family has another culture. If you come from one ethnic background, then you're influenced by certain traditions in the uh, that ethnic tradition. If you come from a another country, you may be influenced by those traditions. And so, a culture is a term that sort of in, in, encapsulates the the belief systems of a group of people and how those work themselves out in terms of the behavior uh, within that group of people. So uh, in, a, in a microcosm sense, we have small subcultures, you might say. You have uh, uh, ethnic subcultures. You might have a Hispanic subculture. You might have a, an Arab subculture, a Pakistani subculture, a Persian subculture, Jewish subculture, black subculture. But those are also manifestations of broader cultural trends. When you look at uh, Middle Eastern uh, subcultures, they're influenced at a broader level by certain uh, macro themes that come out of uh, Islamic religion and the way 
that religious system has influenced the way they they think and the way they live and and uh, and many of these values are are learned long before they're consciously aware of them same thing happens in uh in, a, in a, an American culture, you have uh, different cultures, different parts of the country. You have a New York City culture. You have a New England culture. You have a Western uh, California culture, subculture, Texas subculture. But these are also influenced by broader macro trends that go on as part of the United States, which reflects uh, sort of post-Christian uh, Western European thought. And you can't escape this. None of us can escape this because it's sort of in the air we breathe. It's in the, uh, it's in the food we eat. It's in the water we drink. Uh, isn't it interesting how within just a few short years, all of a sudden, nobody wanted to drink tap water anymore. Everybody wants to drink water out of a bottle because somehow the idea got put out there from somewhere that this was uh, better for us and that the water that we get out of a bottle is better. But And usually this is influenced by some sort of environmentalist type uh uh, mentality, and then all of a sudden a few years later, oh, well, the solution's worse than the problem because now we have a problem with all these plastic bottles and landfills. But isn't it interesting how within just a few short years, all of a sudden everybody thinks how normal it is that if I want to get a drink of water, I'm going to go to the refrigerator and I'm going to pull out a plastic bottle of water instead of just going to the faucet and and drinking out of it. And that's just sort of a simple uh, illustration of uh, how we pick up ideas, and that is a neutral idea, but, but we pick up all kinds of different ideas. We're influenced through teachers. We're influenced through peers. We're influenced by parents. We're influenced a tremendous amount by media. Uh, we're influenced a lot by, uh, by music uh, in media. A lot of these things are the transmitters of cultural ideas and worldview ideas. And all worldview ideas are inherently religious. Every worldview idea is religious. And a worldview is basically how a person uh, tries to organize, categorize, and correlate all the details of life to the point where they can have some answer to the basic questions of life. Is there a God? Is there something beyond my physical senses? Is there uh, right and wrong that's absolute? Am I going to be held accountable uh, for something uh, right or wrong in the future after death? Is there life after death? These are the big questions of life. And these are uh, answered philosophically apart from any sort of uh, uh, overt religion that claims some kind of revelation, or they're answered through a religious system that claims some sort of revelatory uh, authority. For Christianity, that revelatory authority is the Bible that should be set completely against all of the values, all of the ideas, all of the trends, all of the fads, that come along that have their root in the soil of modernistic Western civilization or postmodern uh, Western civilization. And yet all of us have been influenced by these things, and yet I would think that very few of us, if uh, even if our life depended on it, could sit down and even list out the characteristics or the qualities of modernist of a modernist worldview or even a postmodern worldview. 
Yet most of us in this room, no matter how spiritually mature we might think that we are, and most of us probably think more highly of ourselves in this area than we ought, uh, we're, we would be surprised if uh, God gave us pure objectivity and we looked into our soul to realize how much our ideas are influenced by uh, uh, some of you have been around Texas long enough to be influenced by a Texas uh, mentality, um, an American United States mentality, a Western civilization mentality, and we look at life completely different from others. If you are a, uh, a Christian evangelical conservative uh, politically, uh, you look at things complete, in a completely different way than than the way a a, a liberal, uh, an East, let's say an East Coast liberal politician uh, looks at things. Uh, uh, secular, atheistic, uh, East Coast politician. Uh, you won't see the things the same way. There's a different set of glasses, as it were, and this has to do with, with worldview. Now, as a believer, hopefully, when you come to understand that you've picked up long before you were ever saved and to a large degree after you were saved probably, you kept um, defining focusing, fine-tuning this set of glasses that were given to you by the culture. And you accepted that. So you're not volitionally neutral in this. And you accepted this, and you chose to believe uh, certain things. This is part of your, your worldview. And now that you're a Christian, you understand that you have to basically break this system down, identify the components of this these glasses that you've been wearing so that you can break it down and remove them and replace the, that set of glasses with a biblical set of glasses. It's all about change. That's what Romans 12.2 says, that don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. That's shifting one pair of glasses for another pair of glasses, but be transformed by the renovation, the renewing of your of your mind, of your mentality. So we have to think about these things, and we have to understand that there are a lot of ideas, a lot of opinions, a lot of values that we've sort of absorbed from family, friends, peers, uh, educators, uh, media, uh, textbooks that uh, we need to take out and evaluate under the bright light of Scripture. And when we shine the bright light of Scripture on it, it exposes those ideas and values and then we need to change. That's what uh, we need to do. So we need to be identifying worldly thinking in our souls. This is part of what, uh, part of the application of what Jude says, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a word that indicates a um, an extreme or uh, ex- uh, intense effort on behalf of something. Uh, we're going to make it a priority. We are going to decide whether uh, we're going to be Olympic trainers or in training for the uh, Worldview Olympics or whether we're just going to sat- be satisfied with trying to uh, win in a kindergarten contest. And a lot of Christians think, oh, well, I can never com- uh, you know, make it in the Olympics. I couldn't make it in any kind of contest. I'll just go out and, uh, and stay at the kindergarten level. And we set our sights extremely low. And as a result, we wonder why things don't work for us in the Christian life. And the way they don't is because, number one, we really haven't accepted the authority of Scripture absolutely. 
And number two is we're not dedicated to transforming the thinking in our soul uh, from the Word. We think that 30 minutes once a week is going to do it, and 30 minutes every day isn't quite going to do it unless you're really thinking uh, about what's going on. So we have to exert ourselves. Now, Jude is writing this whole epistle for this purpose to uh, challenge the people to to change. This is, I pointed this out, this is called uh, paranasis, which is a form of uh, literature designed to uh, encourage people to a course of action, a specific course of action to discourage them from another course of action. So it involves both a positive uh, as well as a negative. It is a positive statement of what we should do and a negative of what we uh, should not do. So we're contending uh, for the faith, which is, a, that, as I pointed out, a set body of doctrine. Now, this is going to start first and foremost, as I pointed out last time, with our thinking. It's going to start off with the thinking in your soul. That's the point of uh, the battle starting, and then it moves to your family, your close environment, especially if you're a parent, making sure that your children uh, are brought up and trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which means you need to uh, constantly watch what they uh, where they're getting input. You need to watch their friends. You need to watch what they watch on TV. You need to watch the movies, the media, all these different influences. You can't be there all the time for everything, but from the time they're young, you start inculcating these values into the into your children. Uh, one of the silliest ideas is that parents who, who get the idea that, well, I'm going to teach things to my kids, and then they have to make up their mind. No, the role of a parent is to make the mind up for the kid. You're the parent. You're the leader. You're not the friend of the kid. You're not there, the one who's there to give them options, and they get to make a decision. Until they're 18, they do it your way or the highway, and that's just the way it should be. Uh, and then we have to contend for the faith within the local church and make sure that we maintain uh, <clears throat> maintain our uh, commitment to the truth of Scripture. This is part of a battle. I pointed out last time this is seen in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 and 4, that we are involved in a warfare. Paul constantly uses warfare terminology. We're pulling down strongholds. These are deeply entrenched ideas. They've fortified themselves within our souls, and we have to go in with uh, doctrinal landmines uh, in order to uh, blow up these our doctrinal grenades in order to blow up these walls and to get rid of them. We're in the dem- demolition uh, business doctrinally, and that means that you have to take a specific um, intentional effort uh, in order to do this. This is the same kind of thing that Paul told uh, Timothy. Now, I ended last time by going into an analysis of how we know anything. This isn't just how we know anything. This has to do with authority. How do you know something is true? Well, I, I just believe it. That's how a lot of people say, well, it works for me. That's that's another thing. Or uh, you may say, well, that's just the way my family is. Well, those are inadequate answers. I mean, if we believe there is truth, and that's an issue today because there, in postmodernism there's a rejection of the idea that there's any set truth, any set faith, uh, it's, and so that makes it very difficult in other, other areas. But we all, when we get pushed up against the wall, even the postmodernist is going to say, well, I don't agree with that. That's wrong. 
Well, what they've instantly done is they've applied some set of absolutes. And then you point that out to them and they start uh, uh, crawfishing and backing up. But in terms of philosophy and in terms of thinking logically in, in an organized manner about this, but you have to remember in postmodernism, uh, any kind of approach that's logical or orderly or organized is rejected uh, beforehand. That in and of itself is a wrong approach. So this is one of the reasons why we look around sometimes in, in churches like ours that teach the word and we say, well, where is everybody? Why don't we see the young people uh, coming to church like in our generation? We were positive to the word. We wanted to learn the word. We wanted to learn doctrine. We look around, and we can't get the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings to come to church on Sunday, much less five times a week like many of us did when we were in our 20s and our 30s. And the reason is because they don't think like we did. We thought as modernists where we thought that in, in a sense, we are, are, the very core of our thinking was shaped by the idea that there there were answers, and we needed to learn the answers. And the way to learn the answers was through study and through thought and through analysis. But in postmodernism, because modernism didn't work, there's not only a rejection of the starting point in modernism, there's a rejection of the methodology of modernism, which is logic, the use of logic and the use of study and the use of reason. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's just irrational. Yes, that's right. You've got the picture. It is irrational. They have elevated irrationalism to the level of deity. And they worship at the idol of irrationalism and at the idol of mysticism and at the idol of emotionalism and the, at the idol of subjectivity. Whereas most, of, most people in this country who are over the age of about 45 or 50 were still trained in a culture and brought up and influenced in a culture that was, that was modern. Although there's this, the shift occurred in the 60s with the baby boom generation. And uh, the baby boom generation basically marks all those who are born between 1946. Actually, I think it's January 7th, nine, exactly nine months after VE Day. Uh, the birth, the birth rate in America went from zero to 90 in one day. And if you look at the chart, it goes along like this, and then it just goes straight up uh, exactly uh, nine months after the victory in Europe. And then this lasted for um, from 1946 for 18 years until 1964. And then you have this, you know, plateau that occurs, and then it just drops off. Uh, within one year, uh, it goes from 90 to zero. And so there's a you have, and you know, sociologists tell us that there are three levels of. Uh, of baby boomers, there's the initial wave, and then there's the middle group, and then there's the ones who are trying to catch up at the end. And um, But that group, when that group moved through culture, moved through American society because their numbers were so large, they had an, a, a, an inordinate impact on, on society and, and culture. Just to give you uh, one example from... Uh, uh, one, one example, I don't remember the exact numbers, but uh, in the early 50s, 51 or 52, when Disney first came out with the uh, Fess Parker, Davy Crockett um, series, coonskin pelts, 
That's the skin of a raccoon. Coonskin pelts went from about 50 cents a pelt to about $5 a pelt in about two weeks. And it stayed high like that until the fad wore off. And then when the fad wore off, boom, the bottom went out of the uh, uh, coonskin market. Same thing happened with uh, whammo and um, uh, hula hoops. And whammo, all of a sudden, this hula hoop thing just took off for four or five years, and they just ramped up all their production. It was a, you know, this was the uh, uh, golden egg laid by the goose. And then all of a sudden, baby boomers decided to go off to the next fad, and whammo was left with warehouses filled with these plastic hula hoops, and nobody wanted them anymore. Um, so, so that generation moves through the 60s, and, and there's this rebellion that occurs against the establishment. It's always interesting to me. People go back to the 50s, the TV shows that were pro-family, and say, you know, we need to have TV shows like this. The Father Knows Best, the Donna Reed Show, Ozzie and Harriet, a lot of these shows like that. But the kids that grew up on that were the rebels in the 60s. The kids that grew up on the establishment-oriented television shows of the 50s are the hippies, the dropouts, the uh, dopeheads, uh, the the people seeking meaning and truth on LSD in the in the 60s. They they rejected the foundational worldview that was communicated to them by their parents and they're characterized uh, by by rebellion. And so there are uh, you know a certain number, maybe half or so, of the baby boom generation went on into postmodernism. The other half is still stuck with their feet in modernism, culturally speaking. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, in terms of systems of thought or the basis for truth and authority, we have uh, either rationalism, empiricism, or some blend of the two. Rationalism is the idea that man has certain innate ideas, and if he just starts with those innate ideas and uses logic and reason, then he can come to the answer of the great questions of life. Is there something out there that is beyond the material or the physical? Uh, what are the absolutes? Is there is a soul immortal? Is there life after death? Uh, things of this nature. Uh, rationalism can't get to those ultimate answers, though. It always falls apart, and it's usually replaced historically in the way the trends go with empiricism. Empiricism is the idea that I can come to truth on the basis of what I observe, on the basis of sense perceptions, taste, touch, uh, hear, see. Uh, these are the basics, and through the rigorous use of logic, I can come to truth. In the, in, in the Enlightenment period in, in uh, Western civilization, the period of the uh, 1600s, 1700s, there's a rejection of religion as a source of truth, and in its place, man's uh, reason is elevated. And it's either, in, first it's rationalism, then it's empiricism. This is elevated, uh, and, and man is going to be able to find truth apart from God. But, it, it, again, it ends up being meaningless, and you end up in the skepticism um, of, the, uh, of David Hume in the late 1700s. And in response to him, you have the rise of a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant who says, well, since we can't know truth in and of itself, we can only know truth as we perceive it. So no longer is truth something that exists out there, and, and, and up until this point in time in history of Western civilization, no matter what you 
believed or how you believed or how much you disagreed, everybody believed there was objective truth. We just didn't agree what it was. Now, after seven, basically 1775, 76 is when Immanuel Kant published the Critique of Pure Reason, and after that, nobody believes in, in objective truth anymore. Well, not instantly, but it works itself out into the 19th century. And the 19th century, in terms of the study of the history and impact of ideas, is really the impact of Kant's thinking in all the different intellectual uh, disciplines. And so that is what brings us the, all, the, all of the wonderful uh, aspects of, of modern, modern society, Darwinism, uh, Marxism, Freudianism, uh, sociology based on uh, Herbert Spencer and Augusta Comte. These are all the ideas that, that, that are the fruit of the root of, of, of Kant's thinking. It's a rejection of rationalism and empiricism. You see it in music, music in the night, up to the end of the 1800s, I mean, in, end of the 1700s, is, is orderly. You listen to Mozart. But then you see this, hear this ship, listen to Mozart, then listen to Beethoven. Beethoven is emotional. It's a rejection of that, uh, rigid order, orderliness that you have in, 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 in Mozart and Handel. And it's a return to emotion. It's the shift from, from the Enlightenment to Romanticism. And you see the same thing happening in, in art. And that is related to the fact that a shift has begun to take place in terms of going to mysticism or subjectivity. Now, mysticism doesn't come in full speed at this point, but the door's been opened and it takes time. And many people will, will if they, when they try to periodize, that means to mark out when a, 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 a period of time begins or ends, when they periodize modernism, they say modernism died in 1900. And that's when postmodernism uh, really came, began to come to the forefront in uh, intellectual thought. Uh, many of us, but, but the average person in the pew, the average person in the school desk, the average person uh, working down at, uh, at Humble Oil and Gas at that, at that time uh, was basically still a modernist. It wasn't until post-World War II that you really have the sociological grassroot impact of, um, of, of mysticism. And of course, those three systems can't, can't get you absolute truth. They all stand in opposition to the, uh, revelation of God that is objective. See, in rationalism, where's your ultimate authority? It's in your reason, human reasons, between the ears of every human being. In empiricism, where's the ultimate authority? Same thing, it's between your ears. Now, you use sense knowledge, but sense knowledge is organized and categorized by, by reason. That's between your ears. Mysticism, where do you get truth? Now, it's, it's a subjective impression, and it's a rejection of logic, but it's still between your ears. So in rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, you have the ultimate expressions of humanism. And with the rejection of God, it becomes known as secular Humanism, that is a, 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 a humanism that completely rejects God and focuses on pure secular society as a source of all truth. This is over against revelation. Now, in modernism, 
there's the emphasis that reason and uh, rationalism and empiricism, reason and experience based on logic can bring us to truth. In postmodernism, there's a rejection of that. And so I want to go through this because we need to understand uh, uh, some of these things. And last time I ended by giving you this little chart. You have uh, modern rationalism starts with Descartes. When he said, I think, therefore I am, he's basically saying, because I think I have self-consciousness and I can think, uh, he said, I must exist. Everything else may be an illusion, but I must exist because I'm thinking. Okay, and he tried to start with that idea and work himself to God, and he never got out outside of his own head. And so you have others like Locke, Barclay Hume, these are called the empiricists, and they come along and they try to start with the existence of things uh, and, and perceptions, and using logic and reason, they try to get to truth. But it, as I pointed out earlier, it collapses with Immanuel Kant, and this leads to increased skepticism and ultimately existentialism. And existentialism basically means that the only way I can validate my own existence, since I'm just a cosmic accident, according to Freud, I'm just a, uh, a, a lightning hit some mass of protoplasm, and now here I am. I'm nothing more than an advanced form of p- protoplasm. Therefore, uh, I have no meaning and value in the universe. The only way I can... I can't live like that. That's extremely dark and depressing. So I either turn to drugs, which is what happens in the 60s, 70s, and since then, or I turn to religion. So religion becomes the opiate of the masses. And so religion can be bad or good, uh, depending on what's what's uh, going on there. But what we see is that uh, the only way to validate yourself in existentialism is to go do something. And uh, whether it's uh, throw a lady under the bus or help a lady across the street not get hit by the bus, it doesn't matter because you just have to do something to validate your your own existence. Well, all all of that is modernism, and modernism goes basically goes to seed in existentialism, which gives birth to what is known as postmodernism. Now, you may be saying, well, what does this have to do with me? And then some of you have heard terms of postmodernism, and I'm hoping that and some of these lessons that you understand it a little more. But I'm going to read some quotes from a couple of different books that are uh, well over 10 years old now. In fact, this first book that I'm reading was published in 1996, I believe. Um, it's called The Death of Truth. The Death of Truth, edited by Dennis McCallum, M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M, The Death of Truth, uh, Responding to Multiculturalism, uh, the Rejection of Reason, and the New Postmodern Diversity. So this is written 16 years ago, and yet it is as relevant and timely for today as anything you'll ever read. And, and in this book, in the opening chapter, uh, which is just o- orienting us to the whole idea of postmodernism, he, he, I'm just going to read some of the quotes here. He says... Uh, well, postmodern, postmodern jargon is difficult for most people to decipher, and recent books on postmodernism, secular and Christian, offer a little help because they're written by scholars for scholars. And, of course, they're going to make the point that their book is trying to help people in the pew understand these things. And he says, once you understand these things, some of the things, some of the trends that are going on in our culture will begin to make sense to you, such as the political correctness movement. Uh, which is an attempt by schools and corporations to control what students and employees say. That is a fruit of postmodernism. Postmodernism has also produced an increasing view 
that since 1996 is really much more evident uh, around the country that the role of the judicial courts is not to provide uh, fair trials to members of racial minorities or less affluent socioeconomic groups because courts, the judicial system, in the view, postmodern view, the judicial system operates only to guard the privileges of the dominant culture. And now we have Occupy Wall Street and all of these other things, and that's just a byproduct of this because, because what they look at is that these structures are just basically there to keep keep us under control. Uh, another fruit of this, he, he points out, is a reluctance among educational and parenting experts to correct, confront, grade, test, or group children based on the belief that labels stuck on children stick for life. So if they can't play football very well when they're in the third grade and they get a a, a D in uh, physical fitness, then that's going to be stuck on them for life and that's going to make them turn into a nerd. Of course, if they're Steve Jobs, maybe that's not such a bad idea. But um, no, so this is the idea that you don't want to have winners or losers. So you produce a culture of children that now everybody wins the grand prize, everybody's a winner, nobody knows how to fight and struggle, and nobody knows how to achieve. Uh, Fourth thing he points out is tolerance gone extreme, as in the increasingly common view that we should never criticize another culture or question an individual's moral decision because all views deserve equal respect. Now, that's really important because if you come into a church that teaches truth paranetically, then that means they're going to expose error as well. But if you come with a postmodern mindset, then what they hear is, oh, you're judgmental. You're so negative. All you do is talk about because all they can hear is the negatives of what is wrong, how to evaluate your thinking and the negatives that are there. And so this is judgmental, this is harsh, this is arrogant from their viewpoint. And so because they have on this postmodern set of glasses, uh, they come in as a baby believer and all of a sudden they're just rattled and they're vibrating to the core of their existence because they've always assumed that anybody who says somebody is wrong, dead wrong, is just arrogant and uh, needs to be avoided. Another thing he points out is what's happened in the study of history. Uh, Histories now, you read, and I was talking to a parent in the congregation not long ago who's reading the, I think it's the American History Textbook or the World History Textbook, it's one of them, for his, uh, his son, and he's seeing all the things that are left out and how everything is uh, multicultural, and, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about that term uh, later on. But <clears throat> what we see is histories that purposely leave out even major events in the past, like the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or understanding the thought of Christianity on those documents, uh, histories that leave out these events to further the agenda of certain special interest groups, whether they're feminist, gay, uh, lesbian, transgender, confused, whatever. Uh, there are uh, new attacks on Christian missions, uh, claiming that Christians are destroyers of culture. 
He points out that the belief that male and female are now considered socially created categories. I heard one the other day on watching Fox News in the afternoon, or maybe it was in the evening. I was just channel surfing, trying to uh, pass a little time, and uh, I think I was watching Sean Hannity, and there was he was interviewing um, uh, one of the uh, liberals that's uh, on, and there were, there were a couple. There was a conservative and a liberal, and uh, Sean was asking them questions about. Um, the fact that people are now saying he showed a commercial that's out there that uh, the point of the commercial was that the term illegal in application to uh, those who have entered into the United States in violation of the law, hello, uh, they have come into this country, they violated the law, uh, but illegal isn't a legal term. It's a racist term. And so whenever you refer to uh, undocumented workers as illegal uh, aliens, you're a racist, and that this is a racist term. And I just couldn't believe uh, the, the 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 advocate on the liberal side uh, defending this that anybody uses the term illegal uh, was that way. And at the very end, though, the last sentence he made, well, this he made some comment about, well, well, this would apply only to those who are here illegally. Hello. You can't avoid it. See, see, you just, we have to learn to push them because they can't live with the idiocy, the fantasy, the fraudulent nature uh, of their own, of their own worldview. But this is what's happening. So you not only have things like illegal alien is now just a racial construct to keep, uh, Hispanics and they're not the only illegals, by the way, but just to, they're interpreting it that way, and they're making us, forcing us to try to accept their view that that this is just a racist statement against um, Hispanics, but also women, women. And so there's the belief that the terms male and female are socially created categories intended to enslave women to men. And by the way, if you look at your child's uh, American history textbook you will not find the term founding fathers in relationship to all of the men that were involved, and no women, in the founding of this nation, that is, those who met in Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence and later to uh, write the Constitution, because that is a, a, a sexist term. And it, founding fathers is a term that's designed to uh, marginalize women, and so it is a misogynist term. It's a hateful term and, and um, by, uh, put forward by uh, men who just want to oppress women. Uh, in fact, if you even use the term men or women, you're being sexist. Well, only if you, because you're, you're uh, uh, <coughs> affirming these socially created uh, categories. There's also a hostility towards science because science is built on logic and reason, and uh, inherently within uh, postmodernism, there's a rejection of that. So let's see what some of the postmodern basics are. First of all, they believe the truth is created, not discovered. See, if truth isn't doesn't have an objective external absolute, then it doesn't. It, it, you can't discover it. You create it from within. So not only do individuals create it, but groups create it. And in postmodernism, it's the groups that create truth. Uh, second thing that uh, you need to understand is that reason, or rationality, science, or cultural biases. It has nothing to do with truth because there's a rejection of truth. That's why McCallum named this book The Death of Truth. There's no such thing as truth. 
Uh, it's, this is just a cultural bias, a social construct. Um, third, those who trust reason and the things based on reason, like science, Western civilization, education, the U.S. Constitution, are just biases from a European cultural conditioning. If you come out of, uh, out of Asia, you come out of, uh, uh, the Middle East, then, then you don't think that way. But see, what, what really influenced Western civilization wasn't the paganism that was there before Christianity came along, because that paganism was just another form of the paganism of, of North Africa or the Middle East or, uh, or, or Asia. What made it different was the absolute mentality that came from the contribution of Christianity. So it's inherently an attack on Christianity. And fourth, uh, in terms of postmodern basics, uh, they believe that this cultural conditioning is designed to keep power in the hands of the social elite that is uh, Europeans or, or whites. That's why if you're uh, white, you're the bad guy. If you're white and southern, you're a really bad guy. If you're white, southern, and male, you're a really, really bad guy. And if you are white, southern, male, and an evangelical Christian, then you're public enemy, uh, public enemy number one. Now, as I pointed out already, uh, postmodernism is a reaction uh, to, to modernism. And so uh, <clears throat> it brings a whole new way of thinking. Uh, into every discipline of life. For example, you may think about science and medicine, uh, but if you go to uh, a number of doctors uh, today, they will be uh, using various uh, techniques that have come out of uh, out of Eastern mysticism. I remember going to a chiropractor. Some chiropractors are good. I go to a good chiropractor that's just a basic backcracker, and he understands the physiology of muscles and bones and joints and all of that. But I went to this one uh, chiropractor that was recommended to me about 15 years ago, and he's in there reading my aura and doing all of this other mumbo-jumbo, juju black magic garbage that comes out of the New Age metaphysic that was part of the founding of, of the chiropractic theory. It was a mix or blend of different things. So you may uh, end up going to a doctor and all of a sudden be exposed to some sort of occultic uh, uh, techniques. If you're, you have children who are uh, in a history class, uh, what you'll discover is history is no longer a discussion of objective reality of what happened in the past. It is now a platform by, for radical political and social activism. And so what comes across in history teaching is not what happened in the past, but how we can free ourselves from the social uh, bind th- that was put upon us in the past by those who were more powerful. So there's an emphasis in black studies and gay lesbian studies and, you know, whatever the group of the, the flavor of the year is. And um, uh, this is all based on a postmodern analysis of history. Uh, the other thing that we see is that court decisions made by this from the Supreme Court all the way down are more absurd. Uh, because uh, they view the Constitution as a living document. If truth isn't absolute, then it, it, it changes for every generation, and we have to redefine truth in the law for our generation. Um, and this impacts Christianity, because there's no set objective truth or faith, but it, faith is what works for you. And if Christianity works for you, great. If Buddhism works great for your neighbor, great. Uh, what right have you as a Christian to say he's wrong? Uh, 
uh, well, it's not because of me. It's because of what God says. He's not only wrong, he's dead wrong, and he's going to go to hell and burn for it. And that's either true or it's false. And then you have to bring in external absolutes to determine what is true or what is false. But we've been desensitized, every one of us, because we hear it over and over again, and um, and this impacts every one of us. Now, one other thing I was going to read here is in terms of a definition that he has on postmodernism. He says, postmodernists believe the truth is created, not discovered, which I just pointed out. They think like reason, rationality, confidence in science are just cultural basics, and that this conditioning seeks to keep power in the hands of the social elite. Um, that was the last slide that I gave you was a summary of that quote. So what happens? Uh, in comparison, comparing modernism and postmodernism to biblical Christianity, I'm going to put three categories up here, three columns up here on the, on the board. Uh, the subject, and so we're going to look at, for example, human nature, what does biblical Christianity say about it? That's B.C. And then modernism and postmodernism. And modernism is going to be white. Postmodernism is going to be yellow. So this way we can compare and contrast the different views. Biblical Christianity teaches that mankind is created originally in the image of God uh, and that human beings are both spiritual and physical uh, beings. Um, and modernism Humans are part of the material universe. Everything goes back to materialism, the Big Bang. There's no such thing as something that is immaterial. Uh, the universe is purely physical. Nothing exists beyond our, our senses. In postmodernism, uh, they just basically have no opinion on this, but they're suspicious of any dogmatic assertion. If you say there, that there's an immaterial universe, that's, hey, that's good. It works for you. If they say there's no immaterial, that's fine. It works for you. But if you say make an absolute statement of one or the other, then you're wrong. In the area of human responsibility, free will, or volition, biblical Christianity teaches that man's volition has been diminished by sin, but he is still morally responsible and accountable for every decision that he makes. In modernism, uh, there's a belief that every human being is autonomous and self-governing. He's absolutely free. There's nothing inherently evil or bad, nothing that negative to influence him, and so everybody it, can choose their own direction. But in postmodernism, people are the product of their culture, and they only imagine that they are self-governing. You're, you're the, you, and, and the way this works itself out, it's very interesting. You're the product of a, a white, middle-class a Christian culture. That's why you think the way you do, not because you made those decisions, but your culture shaped you that way. Now, this has affected uh, interpretation of Scripture as taught at some of our evangelical universities because you're a dispensationalist because that's your background. You grew up going, you were, you were saved by somebody who's a dispensationalist and you were taught that, so that's why you're a dispensationalist. Not because that's what the Bible says objectively, but because that is the construct uh, that you were taught. And, uh, and if you're an atheist, well, that's the construct you were taught. And in other words, they, they don't give any basis for, um, uh, individual volition or responsibility. Now, think about that in terms of law, government, uh, the penal system. Nobody's responsible. Uh, looking at something else in terms of reason. For the biblical Christian, reason is necessary, but it's not the sole or ultimate basis for understanding reality. God has revealed himself to us, so reason is under the authority of revelation. 
And modernism, rationalism, and empiricism are ultimate. They rule. And they're the only basis for discovering truth. There's no revelation. But in postmodernism, there's a denial of any objective truth. Rationalism is uh, just a myth. You only think you reason because you have no volition. Uh, in terms of progress, biblical Christianity said mankind isn't progressing uh, toward anything. History is to the ultimate conclusion that God has in the kingdom, but mankind isn't getting better and better uh, in every way. Uh, <clears throat> there are positive advances, but there is no utopia brought about by man. Now, you think about that. If you're a liberal Democrat, uh, I'm not picking on you, but the philosophy governing the modern liberal Democrat party is utopic. They, they reject the notion that man is inherently bad, that they believe society is perfectible, and uh, you look at the uh, philosophies of our current president, Barack Obama, and others, uh, they believe that, that uh, in a utopic state. And you see this even among libertarians. Now, some libertarians are going to take offense at this, but, but there's a strong thread of utopianism even in libertarianism. And I'm sure in some areas of conservatism there's uh, utopianism as well because that is the essence of our worldview, uh, postmodernism. It's utopic. Um, modernism based that optimism on science and reason, but that gave us the killing fields, of uh, Flanders in World War One, it gave us uh, uh, <clears throat> the atomic bombs of Nagasaki and Hiroshima at the end of World War Two, and it has brought the horrors of modern warfare upon us. So maybe science and reason is not so good after all. In postmodernism, there's a rejection of science and reason. Uh, reason leads to horror. Uh, rationalism is a myth. So let's just. Uh, let's just emphasize our feelings, hold hands, sing Kumbaya, or whatever uh, existential song or hymn or anthem there is of the day, and uh, we can all love one another. We can probably find a good song coming out of Haight-Asbury in the 60s. Okay? That's the contrast between modernism and postmodernism, and a modernist or a postmodernist worldview is what influenced every one of us that's listening to this. Uh, that's the world system that we grew up under. But we, in contrast to them, based on the Bible, we can change that. And there's certain amounts of truth in each of these worldviews and certain amounts of error. Uh, remember, it only takes a little bit of error to make something completely wrong. It only makes a little bit of cyanide to make a glass of water toxic and fatal. And so once you get that cyanide introduced to the water, then you're in trouble. So... Uh, postmodernism, modernism are both inherently wrong because they are over against and in opposition to biblical Christianity. And so all of us need to figure out what areas of our soul operate on the relativism of postmodernism and or the secularism of modernism, and we need to flush that garbage out of our soul, and the only way to do that is through the study of God's word. But it's not just a study of truth. We have to understand the error that's there, and it has to be exposed as well because these are the idols that lurk in the dark corners of our own thinking. Now I'll come back next time. We'll go into this a little more. 
uh, historically to help us understand and see what has happened and how culture has changed. But the one thing that hasn't changed is the truth of God's word. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel is always true. Men are sinners. There is always hope for real change that can only come from God, and that happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to look at your word and to look at the culture around us to see how uh, the devil has deceived so many people and how our own sin natures have blinded us uh, to truth and the rationalizations that take place in order to justify uh, our, the antagonism of the culture to righteousness and to truth. And yet we, too, as products of these cultures, have uh, imbibed at the uh, <clears throat> drinking fountain of modernism and postmodernism, and we need to learn how to identify and expunge these uh, areas out of our own souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.